All right, so as we continue uh, in this study of Genesis chapter 4, and uh, we continue to paint this portrait of life in a fallen world that unfolds for us in this narrative after you get past Genesis chapter 3 and the fall that took place there, um, we have some more ground to cover today in this section of, of the chapter, this first, these first several verses of Genesis chapter 4, and as we are continuing to look at these two hugely important figures, Cain and Abel, and, and their story as it's revealed in Genesis chapter 4. Um, and of course, we've pointed out that we see this contrast between these two figures, these two characters, uh, these two sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, contrast, or maybe even a conflict, we might say. Um, really, we see them not just as individuals uh, from primeval history, uh, as recorded in Genesis, but also as sort of representatives uh, one being a representative of the unrighteous or the society of Cain, you might say, the, the, the unbelieving world, you might say, and the other being the representative um, or the profile of the righteous or the redeemed, and that would be Abel or the society of Abel. And, of course, we've determined, obviously, both from our own study of Scripture as well as our highlighting of, for example, uh, the Romans 1 passage, that Life in a fallen world consists of people who all share a common knowledge of God that is either embraced and amplified in the hearts and minds of the society of Abel, the society of the righteous, or it is suppressed and it's exchanged, this knowledge of God is suppressed and it's exchanged for idols or for self-worship. And we looked at this account last week with a particular focus on this area of worship, um, we looked at the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 4, and we talked about how worship, while it is common to man, as it is reflected in Genesis chapter 4, both Cain and Abel bring an offering to the Lord in an act of worship. And we, we just use that to, to illustrate the point that all men are worshipers of some kind. And, and though there is this common experience that we see in this text, we also see worship being what is the great differentiator between these two representatives, between these two societies, if you will. And we talked about that uh, in some depth last week and how there is this real dichotomy between false worship and true worship. So it's not a dichotomy between the presence of worship and the absence of worship. It's really just a dichotomy between true worship and false worship. And what we see here in uh, Genesis chapter 4 is... False worship is, and I'm just going to run through these as a point of review, but we, we talked about how false worship, as it's reflected in Cain, it really originates from a calculated heart of pride, whereas true worship comes from a heart of simple humility. Um, one would ask the question, what can I do or what can I say or what can I produce that will impress God and earn me the esteem and recognition I desire and deserve? So it's a self-righteous form of worship. It's how can I demonstrate my goodness, my worthiness to God so that he will see that in and of itself and receive me on the basis of my own merit, of my own product. Whereas true worship and the true worshiper, more specifically, has this heart of just simple humility. What must I do to please the Lord? What is it that the Lord requires of me? It's completely self-denying, self-aware, meaning that the true worshiper recognizes that 
in and of myself, I've got nothing to bring that would earn God's favor, but I just appeal in humility, like the tax collector, have mercy upon me, a sinner, and I go away justified. What is it that I can do? What, what offering can I bring that would be pleasing to you in my sin? How can I honor you with my life? It's, a, it's, the, it's the life of sacrifice. It's, it's like the Romans 12 passage of offering your bodies as a living sacrifice, where this is your spiritual worship. It's just an offering of ourselves and, and appealing to the grace of God to accept us, uh, even in our sin. And of course, as we know, by virtue of of Christ's atoning death and, and, and resurrection. So that's the heart of the true worshiper. Um, false worship focuses upon uh, what the worshiper produces, which is really just the outflow of this prideful heart, whereas true worship focuses upon what God has done on behalf of the worshiper. Um, it's a different focus. And then false worship or the worship of the false worshiper is never accepted, never acceptable and never accepted by God. But true worship is always accepted by God because true worship flows only out of the heart of a true worshiper. And the true worshiper is accepted by God. That's not to say that we can't offer up vain worship or insincere worship at times, but we are ultimately always accepted. In other words, our position before God is one of being accepted by him on the merits of his work and his grace, not on what we bring so that's kind of just the, the dichotomy that we drew up. And really we're pointing out this, this principle that there is no middle ground here between the unrighteous and the righteous in the sense that there's no sort of uh, areas where there's common ideology or common philosophy or, or common belief that is pure and truly the same. That even when you look at the common spheres of experience like worship, and you really look at them more intently, especially in light of Scripture, you see this divide emerge you know, once again. So that was the kind of the, the gist that we were trying to, to get to. Now, this reality of, um, of this great divide or this no middle ground between these two societies, the unrighteous and the righteous, or the society of Cain, the society of Abel, this divide, um, it, it becomes more obvious to us as this narrative unfolds in Genesis chapter 4, um, and we start to see more of the true character of these two men, really most prominently the true character of Cain rather than Abel, because Abel is, just has less um, mentioned of him in Genesis chapter 4, or I would say the bulk of the, the text really focuses in on Cain. Um, but, but as often the case, and we've talked about this before, when you look at historical narrative in Scripture, um, the, the, the proofs of this kind of principle that, for example, there's no middle ground between these two societies, the, the, the actual proofs of this principle are generally or largely implied by the words and actions of the characters in the narrative more than they are precepts or just literally prescribed or literally straightforwardly stated. So we have to draw inferences, or we have to look at what's transpiring here, and we have to draw conclusions based upon what we're observing in the way that this narrative is unfolding with actual people behaving in certain ways, saying certain things, reacting to circumstances in certain ways. So it's less prescriptive in nature, and it's more by inference or implication as you just follow the flow of the narrative. 
For example, in Genesis chapter 4, you do not see in that passage any reference specifically to Cain being unrighteous. He's not labeled unrighteous. That term is not used in the narrative, nor is Abel deemed or declared righteous. Now, it does say that his, he, he, along with his offering, was accepted, or God had regard for their, his offering, and he had no regard for, for Cain's offering. So you have those references, but, but we're taking it a step further in how we're identifying them, is what I'm trying to say. I'm saying that I, I'm taking these identifications a step further than what the actual narrative does. And, and so, we, but we've done this before, and we, 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 this, is, this is where we stand as, as those who are looking back on God's revelation in history, in Genesis, uh, in a post-resurrection New Testament context. And we've done this quite often uh, before. We, we've already affirmed this, that many times we turn to the New Testament to shed greater light on what we see implied or inferred or beginning to be revealed in the Old Testament. We said this before, that when you look at, for example, Genesis as as primeval history, you don't see inaccurate recounting of events. You just see incomplete revelation. In other words, there's more to come. There's more revelation of God and His purposes that's going to be forthcoming. And so that's where if you, just, if you just set yourself or immerse yourself in the narrative itself, you, you see the implications of things, but you don't see all the explicit references that you often see in the full revelation of the New Testament. And of, of course, this is how we uh, interpret accurately many, many Old Testament passages in light of what we see in the New Testament. So I thought it would be helpful for us to just expand our understanding of these two figures, Cain and Abel, by looking at the New Testament references of them in greater detail, so that we really get in our minds that the New Testament really makes it explicit who these two men were. It's almost as though the New Testament, from a standing-before-God perspective, is very explicit and very clear, whereas the Old Testament narrative, you're sort of in the flow of the story, as this historic, these historical events and these historical characters are playing out their particular role in God's plan of redemption in real time. So let's talk about this for a second. Let's talk about Abel. We're saying that Abel represents the society of the righteous or the believing world, those who are, have been made righteous by God. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, and we'll get a much more vivid, I think, picture of, of Abel as, as the representative of the righteous, of the redeemed. Now, I want to read quite a bit of this. I want to read the first 36 verses of Matthew chapter 23 because I think that, uh, first of all, it's such a compelling passage of Scripture when you look at, at this condemnation of self-righteousness and hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. But it, but it also serves up this amazingly stark contrast that helps us see clearly um, more of who Abel was. So in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 1, 
Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. But not the works that they do, for they preach but, not to practice, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, all of their religious garb. And they love, to place, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now here's where it gets really, really poignant. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but, the in, they are in, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup, and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in these days, our fathers... In the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Are you starting to get the sense of, Genesis, of Jesus' view of the self-righteous? I, I think it's got to be clear by now, right? That's why I wanted to read it. I mean, the, it's just this... Layer upon layer of rebuke and rebuke and rebuke. And then we get to Genesis, excuse me, we get to Matthew 23, verse 34. He says, Therefore, I send you the prophets and the wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, 
so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. There's your contrast, and it's stark. You have Abel, the righteous, contrasted with the utterly rebuked and rejected self-righteous hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And Jesus makes that contrast abundantly clear. You go to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, and you see a little more illumination on Abel. This great chapter on faith and saving faith in particular Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, starts by saying, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Okay, that's not new information. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 4 through which he was commended as righteous. Again, that's what we see in Genesis chapter 4. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now here it gets very explicit. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. We don't see in Genesis chapter 4 that that Abel offered his sacrifice of the firstborn of his flocks, and the fat portions, we don't see that he did that by faith. In other words, those explicit terms are not described for us in the narrative, but we see here in the New Testament that's exactly what was taking place. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was uh, commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So these passages give us clarity, crystal clarity, in terms that are reflective of the fuller revelation of Scripture and redemptive history about this character, this man, Abel, from Genesis chapter 4. Abel was a righteous man, truly righteous man, who offered up an acceptable sacrifice, not on the basis of his own merit, but purely on the basis of faith in God alone as his only means of salvation. He was making an appeal to God as Savior in his sacrifice, in his offering. Cain, on the other hand, we see again very explicit description of Cain in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 12 starts by this. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Very explicit description of Cain there. So, not just information about the proceedings of his actions as it relates to his offering or his response to God when he confronted him and so on, but a very explicit designation. He was basically a son of the devil. He was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Again, another affirmation of the righteousness of Abel. When you go to the book of Jude, And you look at verses 3 and 4 of Jude, and then you pick it up again uh, in verses 11 to 13. This this letter 
that really focuses on the plague of false teaching and false teachers in the context of the church. In verse 3 it says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once, uh, once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who prevent the grace of God into our uh, excuse me, who pervert the grace of God, of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So here's here's who he's addressing. He's addressing these these ungodly people who have crept in unawares and are corrupting the gospel. So drop down to verse eleven. He says, "Woe to them." For they walked in the way of Cain. So now Cain is being directly associated with the ungodly, unholy deceivers of the true righteous, the redeemed of God, the church. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with, with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, and listen to this, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's Cain. Those who walk in the way of Cain. That's their condemnation. Abel excuse me, Cain was a son of the evil one, and he was condemned to the gloom of utter darkness forever. So you have, in the New Testament, more explicit description, more explicit language, if you will, to draw this distinction between the society of Cain, or the unrighteous, and the society of Abel, the righteous. Now, let's shift our thinking back to Genesis chapter 4. I want to to challenge our thinking a bit in a couple of ways as it relates to this account of Cain and Abel. And I want to continue to draw out some principles of application for our own lives as we look at this this narrative. So let's just pick up in Genesis chapter 4 and let's read verses 1 to 16. I know I'm doing a lot of reading, so I appreciate you hanging in there with me. But let's read uh, verses 1 to 16 of Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying... I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desires for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, I have a question for you. This is the question I want to get a little bit of feedback from you on. In light of what we just looked at a few moments ago, in these New Testament passages that give some very explicit descriptions of Cain and Abel, in light of that, and by comparison to this narrative in Genesis chapter 4, do you think that the Genesis 4 narrative describes Cain and Abel in as clear or absolute terms as did the New Testament passages? Yes? Okay. Does anybody disagree with that? I mean, this is, this is, this is a bit of an opinion question. I'm not, I'm not trying to trick anybody. So you, you say yes. Does anybody, you, I, thought, I, saw you, I saw you saying no. I know you like to be pointed out. No? I'll go with a no. You go with a no? I think it's more, this Genesis is more about the event, about the murder. Okay. Whereas the New Testament talks more about their standing before God. I mean, it's a bit of a hard question to answer because we're coming at this from a New Testament perspective and probably, if not direct familiarity with the passages I just read, familiarity at least with principles of redemption and the unrighteous and the righteous and righteousness of God and Christ. I mean, so it's a little bit hard for us to kind of, you know, purely objectively consider that kind of question. But don't we then have to ask the question, if the Old Testament, if Genesis 4 really doesn't end us the picture, how did the people writing the New Testament see so much that we don't see? Well, I mean, I, I do believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the writers of the New Testament, so I do believe that you know, there's an element of inspiration there that would give them um, knowledge and insight to, to write words that would be more explicit. Than I, in other words, if all I had was Genesis chapter 4 to go on, you know, I don't know that I would necessarily take it to that explicit degree in terms of description in my own wisdom or insight. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, that's what that would be my response. When they present it in the New Testament, they almost do it as if, is it obvious from reading? Well, yeah. I mean, they, they have, a, they have an, a, a greater understanding of Old Testament and Old Testament history and all that, but you were going to say something? I think uh, it highlights an issue that when we read narrative passages, because everything you read in the New Testament is not narrative. Right. It's didactic, right. clear, principled. When we read these narrative often read them theologically. We don't read them asking the right theological questions of the text. But the, for example, the writer of Hebrews says that he, uh, uh, Abel was counted righteous because God accepted his gift. In other words, he, he's looking at the text and he's from the text drawing conclusions right. from the text that we don't necessarily draw. But he has this Understanding that God would never have accepted his gift if he had not been first counted righteous. So I, I do think that the basis for their conclusion is in the text. Uh, I don't think they're necessarily pulling something out of 
out of the air. Right. Maybe it's just like you said, we're not as conversant with the Old Testament, and we don't always read it theologically like we should. We just read it for the bare, you know, facts of the story or something like that, without asking the really deeper theological questions of the text that maybe these guys were asking. Right. And I would also say that there is, I'm going I'm to try to challenge us a little bit in terms of uh, some application principles as it, re- as it relates to this. But let's just look at the, the facts of the narrative itself and as it relates to these two characters in sort of, a, sort of just a bullet point fashion, okay? So we, as we've said, we see comparatively little about Abel. I mean, we have some, but it's comparatively little when you compare it to Cain. But we see Abel, we, we see that his birth order, we know that he was born after Cain, he was a younger brother. We see his vocation, a keeper of sheep. We see his offering. It was the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. We see his acceptance by God that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And then we see his death at the, at the hands of Cain. That's kind of like the, the facts of the narrative as they flow out. Okay? And then with Abel, we also see his birth order. He was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. We see his vocation, a worker of the ground. We see his offering, the fruit of the ground. Then we see a little bit more. We see his rejection of God, his rejection by God, similar to, or in contrast to, I should say, uh, God's acceptance of Abel's offering, that the Lord had no regard for Cain and his offering. So we see that rejection. Then we see more, his reaction to God's rejection. We see some description there. We don't see that for Abel. We see it for Cain. And his reaction was anger and jealousy. No, he had another option there. What was the other option? We talked about this maybe last week or the week before. Could have repented. That would have been a great, great course. But his response to God's rejection of his offering was anger and jealousy. We also see his reaction to God's correction. When God approaches him and says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. So we see his response or his reaction to God's correction, and it's treachery and murder of his brother. That's his reaction. We see his reaction to God's confrontation about this. God comes to him and says, where's your brother Abel? And again, just like in, just like in the, the encounter in Genesis chapter 3, this is not, God is not inquiring of the GPS coordinates of Abel. He's not, he's, he's, he wasn't asking, where, Adam and Eve, where are you? I, I don't know where you are. It's not a question of location, okay? physical location. But he, we see this question come, and we see uh, Abel, excuse me, Cain's reaction to God's confrontation of him, which is deceit and mockery. He says, I don't know where he is. And then he goes a step further and says, and after all, am I my brother's keeper? Now, again, he's being confronted by God himself, and that's his response. Wasn't God really asking, what is your relationship to your brother? I I suppose, yes. Um, But he said, I know where Abel, he goes, I I don't know where Abel is, am I my brother's keeper? So there's an element of mockery in his response. And then we see his reaction to God's judgment, which really is just, it's just, it's just laden with self-pity. Do you kind of pick up on that? It's kind of a woe is me, and this is really going to be bad for me, and over and over again, it's just going to, it's going to go from bad to worse, and it's just a lot of really self-centered self-pity. The culprit becomes the victim. 
That's right. That's right. He is just, I mean, how could this be? I mean, he just, after all this, he's still in this mode of purely self-centeredness. So his, his worship is self-centered. His, his response to all these op- uh, opportunities for repentance are self-centered. And then the judgment comes, and it's just loaded with self-pity and still no repentance. And then we see his reaction to God's gracious commitment to protect him when he said that people are going to kill me. And he said, that's not going to be so. And, and so his reaction there, and I, you know, it's just, a, it's just a statement that he went away. He left the presence of the Lord. Now, he was cursed, and so, but, but still, I mean, is it possible, if you think about where God is coming from on this and, and what we see from God here, which we're going to mention in just a minute, that, that he, he may have just had one last chance, God, please, I see it now. Finally, I see it. But no, what we see in the narrative is that he went away from the presence of the Lord. So his reaction to God's, even God's extension of, I will protect you, is we don't see anything else but just his departure. His concept of God was certainly um, localized, that he could run away. Right. That's right. The land of Nod. That's right. That, that Hebrew word there, where, can also be how. Which, which one? The where is your brother. Oh, Okay. Okay. So asking about his status, his state, his current state. So now we also see some very compelling things about God that are very similar to what we saw in Genesis chapter 3. We see that he's incredibly patient with sinners. I mean, you see the patience of God here again. And it's really, in light of what we see happening, it's just staggering once again to see God endure in this way. Yes, we are beneficiaries of, of his patience with us, too, but also common grace um, in, in the world. We, and we see this common grace and mercy even toward those who reject him, that, that he extends this protective grace to Cain, um, even in spite of all of this. So we see the character and nature of God revealed in all this as well. Now, here's where I'm going to kind of um, challenge us a little bit. At least it's challenging to me. I'm going to challenge myself and invite you to, into, my, into my own reflection, I guess. Maybe is another way to put it. I believe here that there's, there's an implied caution for us. As we look at this whole sweep, okay? As we look at the, the New Testament explicit descriptions of Cain and Abel, and as we think about the society of Cain being the unrighteous and the society of Abel being the righteous, and we put all this focus, as does the text of Genesis chapter 4, on Cain as the unrighteous one and the one whom God rejected his offering and rejected him, and he did these horrible things, and even in spite of God's overtures, he never repented, and we, we place, we're placing a lot of focus on the unrighteous and and this great divide that exists between the righteous and the unrighteous. But I, I believe there's a caution for us here as we, as we look at this. Can anybody take a stab at what I might see as a caution? Again, I'm just asking you to take a stab at it. I'm asking you to try to peer into my head, which is really dangerous. But anybody see something that, that is a caution for us as we, as we focus in on the unrighteous, the society of the unrighteous. 
I'll give you a hint. So I think the, the caution for us is that, and, and, and again, I, I tried, I tried, I really did try to kind of come up with some succinct words to describe um, what I'm thinking here, but when you look at the New Testament passages and their descriptions of Cain and Abel, okay, and the explicit nature of them, they're ultimate, right? I mean, they're, they, they're, there's an ultimate sense of those descriptions. They're, it's the final verdict on these two men. One was accounted as righteous. One brought an offering in faith and was, and, and was accounted to him as righteousness. He was accounted as righteous. One was condemned. One was the son of the evil one. So the dichotomy there is explicit and it's ultimate. But... Our walk in our lives, as we, um, those, those of us who claim Christ as Savior, those of us who are counted among the righteous, the society of the righteous, who live in a world of, filled with the unrighteous, um, we don't know with absolute and ultimate certainty where that divide is. We don't, we don't know where it is. We, we don't know with absolute certainty who is ultimately of the society of the righteous or the unrighteous. You follow what I'm saying there? Are you talking about people, discerning people, or discerning precepts, uh, what's right and what's wrong? I'm talking about people. I mean, I mean, families made up of individuals. I'm just saying, we can't discern between who is of the redeemed, of the elect, of the predestined before the foundation of the world, and who is not. Yeah, that's why I say one is the family of God, the other is the children of Satan. Right, and we don't know who they are, right? right. So, for me, and probably this is just me, but my sinful tendency might be to try and make those kinds of calls in advance. In other words, when you, when, you, when you start to focus on this dichotomy between the society of the righteous and the society of the unrighteous, as we've been doing, as I've been doing, it's been my fault that we've done it that way, right? There's a caution for us to not adopt the the perspective, the ultimate perspective of God. For example, as Jesus was speaking and rebuking the Pharisees, would you say that he had unique authority to be able to do that to that extent? So, would you also agree with me that um, you and I were not always a part of the society of the righteous at some point? from the perspective of human experience, in our historical narrative, if you will, as life was unfolding, we were Cain. So it just, what what pressed in to me on this as I was thinking about this is that we are not called, as you know, to try to identify who is of what society. And I think that that is a danger for us as believers, and always has been. Well, when you read this narrative of the description of the 
Pharisees. You have you have to look at the rest of the New Testament and realize you know, there was exceptions like Nicodemus and Paul, right. who were Pharisees, who certainly believed in God. Right. Right. So it points to the individual nature of salvation too, right? So you can't you can't paint in broad strokes and that kind of thing. So absolutely right. But I think a, a, a more I think a more convicting way to look at this, at least at least the way I kind of thought about this, is I thought about this in light of what our call is. Those of us who have been reconciled to God, what is our ministry? A ministry of reconciliation, right? So listen to me as I read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 to 21. This is our responsibility in light of all of this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When I think about the the climate that we are living in now. Shane talked about this a little bit last week. And even you look at the news this week and just hatred and anger and violence and polarization of people based upon ethnicity or, or sexual orientation or whatever the, whatever the, the social or, or fallen ill might be manifesting at any given time. It's the caution for us is that we get caught up in drawing those distinctions about people as opposed to focusing in on our ministry of reconciliation. That, that everyone who is, who is of the society of the righteous, even though in eternity past that was settled, in the historical narrative it's unfolding and we have a primary responsibility in that narrative and that is to be about the gospel and to be about this ministry of reconciliation, not categorizing groups of people into different modes of eternal destiny or eternal standing before God. That's our challenge. Giving this practical application, then, are you saying that in these so-called gray areas we should not take a stand? Um, I'm, can you be more specific on what you mean? Well, let's talk about uh, uh, same-sex marriage, for example. Mm-hmm. Should we not pre- try to prevail against that? No, I, I think we take a stand because Scripture takes a stand. I'm just saying that those who would advocate for same-sex marriage need Christ. They need to be sympathized with, yes. They right. And, and our, treatment, our treatment of people should be oriented toward... I'm not saying that we just completely you know, open ourselves up to... I mean, there, there, there are principles of Scripture that talk about our associations, talk about life in the body of Christ. We have church discipline. I mean, there, I'm, I'm not talking about those kinds of sort of um, loose, loose sort of barriers or, or, or distinctions. 
What I'm talking about is um, are, we, are we viewing people the way we should view people? In other words, it's, it's a fine line between judgmentalism and tolerance. Yes, you could say that, I think. Um, and I think that it's, it's I, I, guess, I guess the lesson of history and the lesson of Scripture is that self-righteousness and legalism and putting people into buckets or categories is the tendency of man and always has been. And so I just, I just hold that up as, you know, it's a, it's a thing for us to keep in mind even, even as we are being pressed in sort of in our culture, in our day and time, in areas, in some areas where it's new, the pressure is new for many, um, the... the um, Aggressive nature of it is new, and I just I have personal concerns about my response in these situations, and I have concerns about how collectively the body of Christ responds in these situations, um, and so I'm just holding up for us again what Scripture compels us to. The cliche is, is true here: we hate the sin while we love the sinner. We always we hate our sin as well. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just. It's just a, a reminder of that. And, of course, you know, I'm sitting here focusing all this attention on the unrighteous because the passage really focuses a lot on Abel. But I just want to be mindful of the fact that our ministry is one of gospel outreach in the midst of all that. And that even we ourselves are not of the society of the righteous because we did anything to deserve it. So, just a reminder. So what do pastors do when they would love to preach the word of God Speech. That's a no-no. I don't know. What do pastors do, Shane? <laughs> yeah. Interesting times we're living in, though. And I, I, I'm thankful for our church because of the consistent teaching of the Scripture and not focusing on things that are not going to be helpful in, in these days and these times. So, Anything else before we close? All right, let's pray.